Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome best-selling Australian crime writer Michael Robotham to Books, Books, Books to discuss his latest thriller and 18th book, When You Are Mine, published here in June by Hachette. It's also out in the UK and in New Zealand, and it has been in the two weeks since its release at the end of June, it's been the number one fiction bestseller. So a huge congratulations for that, Michael. Thank you, Nicole. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about Michael and his phenomenal career. He's sold more than 6 million copies of his novels across 50 countries since the publication of his first novel, The Suspect, in 2004, and it was the first in the Joe O'Loughlin series. He has since written many other best-selling books, including Good Girl, Bad Girl and When She Was Good, the first two novels in the Cyrus Haven series. Before he became a writer, Michael spent 14 years as an investigative journalist working in Australia, the UK and the USA. In 1993, he quit journalism to become a ghostwriter for politicians, pop stars and TV personalities, and he did that for about 10 years. Michael has won many awards. I won't mention all of them, but I will mention that he's the only Australian writer to have won the UK's prestigious CWA Gold Dagger Award for the year's best crime novel in English twice. Not many people have done that. John Lacare is another, and no other Australians have done that. Michael won that award in 2015 for Life or Death and in 2020 for Good Girl, Bad Girl. His novel, The Secrets She Keeps, was recently made into a six-part BBC TV series and there's a second series currently in production. And When She Was Good has just won the 2021 CWA Ian Fleming Steel Dagger for Best Thriller. Crime writer extraordinaire Stephen King has said this about Michael. I always have a huge stack of books to read, but a Michael Robotham novel automatically goes to the top of the pile. Michael, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you very much, Nicole. Could you start by telling us what your latest book, When You Are Mine, is about? Uh, It's narrated by a young policewoman, a very ambitious young policewoman called Philomena McCarthy, uh, who has defied the odds to to become uh, a policewoman in the London Metropolitan Police because... She comes from a notorious crime family. Her father and her uncles are notorious gangsters and she's sort of been estranged from them for a decade and fought her way onto the police force, but she does have that baggage to carry with her. Um, and uh, the story is basically about on, on one of her normal ships, she rescues a, a young woman from a domestic abuse situation uh, only to discover that the perpetrator is a decorated London detective. Uh, and obviously. Philomena, I mean, that's one of the things the police do not do. They do not investigate their own. And Philomena makes a powerful enemy when she arrests this man for beating up his mistress. Um, And it begins to spiral her life out of control. And she develops an unlikely friendship with a woman she rescues, Campy Brown. And it's a friendship where they seem to bond like sisters, but there's something not quite right about Tempe. There's something not quite right about the story she tells and the situation she gets herself into. And, and Philomena does not realise that until too late. Michael, could you read a, a short extract from the book, please? Okay, this introduces the first two pages of, of When You Were Mine, and it introduces Philomena McCarthy. I was 11 years old when I saw my future. I was standing near the middle doors of a double-decker bus when a bomb exploded on the upper level, peeling off the roof like a giant had taken a tin opener to a can of peaches. One moment I was holding onto a strap and the next I was flying through the air, seeing sky, then ground and sky. A leg whipped past me, a stroller, a million shards of glass, each catching the sunlight. I crashed to the pavement as debris and body parts fell around me. 
looking up through the dust, I wondered what I'd been doing on a London sightseeing bus, which is what it looked like without a roof. People were hurt, dying, dead. I spat grit from between my teeth and tried to remember who I'd been standing next to. A tattooed girl with white earbuds under hacked purple hair. A mother with a toddler in a stroller. Two old ladies were in a side seat arguing about the price of cinema tickets. A guy with a hipster beard was carrying a guitar case decorated with stickers from around the world. Normally I would have been at school at 9.47 in the morning, but I had a doctor's appointment with an ear, nose and throat specialist who was going to tell me why I suffered so many sinus infections. Apparently I have narrow nasal passages, which is probably genetic, but I haven't worked out who to blame. As I lay on the street, a man's face appeared, hovering over me. He was talking, but he made no sound. I read his lips. Are you bleeding? I looked at my school uniform. My blue and white check blouse was covered in blood. I didn't know if it was mine. How many fingers am I holding up? Three. He moved away. Around me, shop front windows had been shattered, covering the pavement and roadway with diamonds of glass. A pigeon lay nearby, blown out of the sky, or maybe it died of fright. Dust had settled, coating everything in a fine layer of grey soot. Later, when I saw myself in the mirror, I had white streaks under my eyes, the tracks of my tears. As I lay in the gutter, I watched a young policewoman moving among the injured, reassuring them, comforting them. She put her arms around a child who had lost his mother. The same officer reached me and smiled. She had a round face and brilliantly white teeth and her hair was bundled up under her cap. My ears had stopped ringing. Words spilled out of her mouth. What's your name, Poppet? Philomena. And your last name? McCarthy. Are you by yourself, Philomena? I have a doctor's appointment. I'm going to be late. He won't mind. The police officer gave me a bottle of water so I could wash the dirt from my mouth. I'll be back soon, she said, as she continued moving above, among the wounded. She was like one of those characters you see in disaster movies, who you know is going to be the hero from the moment they appear on screen. Everything about her was calm and self-assured, sending a message that we would survive this, the city would survive. All was not lost. Michael, thank you for that. Before we start to talk about when you were mine, I want to ask you a few general questions about your writing life. There's a lovely story about when you first decided that you wanted to be a writer at the age of about 12, and it had something to do with an American writer called Ray Bradbury. Could you share that story with us, please? Yeah, I mean, I discovered the the, the wonderful writings of Ray Bradbury when I was about 11 or 12. And, um, I mean, he's most famous for novelist Fahrenheit 451. Um, but he was, you know, I discovered his short stories, um, which were science fiction and horror and uh, and I absolutely adored them. And there were about three Ray Bradbury titles you couldn't get in Australia. And so I, I decided to write a letter to him. And I, I, I just addressed it to Ray Bradbury Random House, New York, because I'd looked in the inside cover of the book. And I don't recall putting a stamp on the envelope. Uh, and I just popped it in the mailbox. And about three months passed, and I came home from primary school. And um, there was a package on the kitchen table, and inside were the three titles the three books that weren't available in australia along with a letter from ray bradbury who had written to say how thrilled he was to have a young young reader on the far side of the world um and uh i mean that was an enormously generous gesture and and and, and i like to credit ray bradbury with the reason i wanted to become a writer but uh, the story sort of got even better because years and years later probably about now seven or eight years ago um I wrote that story up in an American magazine and it was reprinted on my publisher's website. And I, I, I once qu I quoted Bradbury who once said that Jules Verne was his literary father and Mary Shelley was his literary mother. And, and uh, Edgar Allan Poe was the Batwing cousin they kept locked in the attic. And I said that Ray Bradbury was my literary father and that Steinbeck and Hemingway were my overachieving older brothers. And, and this story appeared, just as I've told you, and, and about a week later, uh, I got an email from Alexandra Bradbury, who's Ray Bradbury's youngest daughter. I had no idea that Ray was still alive. Um, I thought he would have long since passed away. And, and Alexandra sent me an email saying, my dad is 91 years old and he is now completely blind. 
but I read him the story that you wrote and I wanted you to know that you made an old man cry and he wanted you to know that you are his son. Oh, and uh, what a beautiful story. It was stunning. And and um and I think there was a little lovely moment postscript to that was, you know, I was just I was due to go and see him. Um when I next got to America on a tour, the plan was that I would go and see him. He died about a few weeks before I arrived. Um, he passed away. But there was an incredible outpouring of stories from people like Neil Gaiman and Joanna Harris, who wrote Chocolat, and Steven Spielberg, and all of them told stories similar to what I've just told you about how Ray Bradbury inspired them. And President Obama announced from the White House um, because one of Ray Bray's most famous series of short stories was called The Martian Chronicles, and the the, the Martian rover had just landed on Mars uh, when Ray died, and, and uh, Obama announced from the White House that the landing spot would forever be known as Bradbury's Landing, which I thought was such a wonderful testament. What a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. Before you were a writer for some years, 14, I think you were an investigative journalist, and you worked quite a lot, I gather, with clinical and forensic psychologists to try to solve with them or to be involved with them in solving complex crimes. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that work that you did? Yeah, it was really, it sort of came after journalism, really, um, rather than as a journalist. Uh, uh, as a ghostwriter, and you, probably, you may well get on to talking about my ghostwriting, um, one of the people that I, I, I did two books with was a man called Paul Britton. Mm. And Paul Britton is the is the pioneer of offender profiling in the UK of psychological profiling, uh, and he's actually the he is the the real life figure that Cracker was based upon. I'm sure many people listening will remember that amazing BBC series starring Robbie Coltrane playing the forensic psychologist um, Fitz. Um, and Jimmy McGovern, the wonderful TV writer, wrote that series based, you know, on, on the work of Paul Britton. And uh, and Paul worked on cases like the Jamie Bolger case and Fred and Rosemary West and some of the most celebrated um, crimes, you know, he, he helped solve. And um, I get I got to watch Paul at work very at very close hand because I, as I said, I wrote, first of all, his first autobiography, The Jigsaw Man, was about his his work with the police and he'd worked on over a hundred murders and many of my novels, um, uh, you know, my, I have a psychologist as my main character and many of those novels, um, draw upon the, the information and the knowledge I got from working with Paul. And the second book, picking up the pieces was about his clinical work because his knowledge comes from having spent over 25 years working with the, in places like Broadmoor and Rampton and these secure psychiatric hospitals working with seriously disturbed people who had either committed terrible crimes or fantasized about committing terrible crimes. Yeah, that's how he had this knowledge when he could walk into a crime scene and tell the police exactly the sort of mind that was behind it. And I can imagine from that, from working so closely with him and from ghostwriting his books that you must have learned so much. How else have you drawn on that ghostwriting experience in terms of your fiction writing, your, your writing of these thrillers? I mean, the art of being a ghostwriter is about, it's all about capturing voice. It's because of the, I did 15 autobiographies for people and they and, and uh, I think five of those were women, um, including people like Jerry Halliwell and Lulu, the 60s pop star, and Margaret Humphreys, the Nottingham social worker who, that book got turned into a film called Orange and Sunshine um, about uh, six or seven years ago. She uncovered the child migrant scandal that saw all those children sent abroad from children's homes in the UK to places like Australia and South Africa and Canada. And each time you're ghostwriting one of those projects, it's about if, if I do my job properly, I capture their voice so perfectly that someone that has known them their entire lives will not recognise my fingerprints on that book. This will look and sound and feel exactly like the person that I've, uh, I'm writing that book for. And I guess, you know, one of the reasons I write most of my fiction in the first person, that little passage I read with Philomena McCarthy, I've written that from the point of view of a 26-year-old London policewoman. Um, I'm trying to inhabit the skin and look at the world through the eyes of a 26-year-old woman. Uh, and I did the same job as a ghostwriter. I had to inhabit the skin of these people and look at the world through their eyes and 
And I think ghostwriting taught me to capture voice, um, unique voice, to make sure that it, every one of us is different. If, if, if I was ghostwriting your story, Nicole, you, your story would sound completely different to mine. You have a different tone of phrase. You have different tone, a different sense of humour, different sensibilities, and I would have to capture that. Mm. I I was wondering about that in this book especially where there are two female protagonists and we're going to move to talk about those in a moment, Philomena and Tempe. You capture the female voice so authentically. I know that you've done that before in other books, but here it's really very striking, especially the the main protagonist, uh, Philomena, whose story or whose perspective we're really hearing this story through. And I wanted to ask how you do write so convincingly in the female voice. I know that you have three daughters, but listening to you explain that now, it's, it's. I think I've answered my own question. Clearly, mm. the fact that you've been a ghostwriter for women has yeah. given you the ability to speak very authentically and very convincingly in the female voice. And you really do it so well in this book. Thank you. Yeah, it's that. And I think, um, and look, it is being surrounded by women. I, you know, I, have, I used to joke that, you know, there's only, there's only Ollie the dog and me and we've both been spayed, you know, but apart from that, we're just surrounded by women. Um, <laughs> but no, it also, I, I, you know, I know when I wrote The Secret She Keeps, you know, which was told from the point of two women, you know, who both at the beginning of the book, you know, are pregnant. Um, and that's a book that's about deeply female issues like, um, pregnancy and childbirth and um, and childlessness and these are deeply female issues and you know I, I spent a lot of time reading mummy blogs and eavesdropping on mothers groups mm. you know because the fact of the matter is you know women when they get together and they go for a walk you know during lockdown or whatever aren't discussing the footy results from the weekend you know they <laughs> they're you know what they talk about and think about are completely different to what you know men talk about and think about and so it's an interesting area this because i was slightly worried with when when i first began writing probably not so much that more so now than then in writing in the female perspective about deeply deeply feminine issues was that i was opening myself up for criticism i know there's a big issue about cultural appropriation and there's an issue about gender appropriation if you're writing from the point of view of a trans character or or a gay character and you're not trans or gay. And I was sort of waiting for someone to sort of say, how dare you as a white middle-aged, balding, grumpier by the year middle-aged man, how dare you think that you, you know, can understand women well enough to try to write from their perspective. And and I and and I sort of took the attitude, well, how are we ever going to achieve or hope to achieve genuine equality if you don't allow someone a man don't allow him to try to empathize so completely and understand so completely that he inhabits the skin and you know just the same i would i think women should be able to write from a male's thing mm. and i sort of think you have to allow us to do i mean we have to understand each other we have to empathize completely with each other to be able to do that and if i get it wrong by all means attack me if their voice is not genuine if i if i if i get it wrong then i'm open for all that criticism but don't don't tell me I can't at least give it a crack. You certainly <laughs> haven't got it wrong in this book. I'd say you've nailed it. It's um, it's it's a very authentic voice. We'll come to talk about Philomena in a moment. I just had one more question about some of your earlier books. The Secrets She Keeps has been made into a BBC TV series starring Laura Carmichael from Downton Abbey. How do you feel about that? How does it feel to see your creations come to life on the screen and how involved were you? And it was funny. Well, it was actually a joint, it was an Australian production, which the BBC bought and have now funded the, the second series because it was the one of the most watched shows um, on the BBC last year. It was the first Australian drama to ever premiere on BBC One in primetime. And it um, got astonishing audience sort of figures. Uh, and um, and the BBC wanted a second series, which we're filming in September. COVID lockdowns, you know, yeah, may well <laughs> uh, delay that. Um, I was involved in storyboarding that um, that first series, and I've been involved in some of the writing on the second series. Um, uh, and oh, look, it's an interesting. I mean, I think they did a fine job. I think you know, and I'm very thrilled with the way it turned out. 
But it has sort of taught me why I love being a writer of novels and I'm in no great hurry to rush in. Like a lot of a lot of well-known novelists have gone on to be TV writers and um, I'm in no great hurry. <laughs> why? Why is that? Because, and this, sounds, this is going to sound really conceited and arrogant, but as a writer, I am God, okay? I get to decide what happens to what character and when. And, and of course, I have editors who advise me and, and I'd be mad if they were all telling me to change something, you know, but I, I don't have to change something if they, they want me to, you know. Um, you know, I can keep it exactly as it is and I get, I, I, I get control. Whereas when you write for TV or for film, you have producer notes, distributor notes, network notes, director notes, actor notes. You have all of these people that can come in and want you to chop and change it. And I, and I get to the point where I'm just sort of screaming at them saying, no, 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 it's fine. Leave it alone. <laughs> and the other thing I discovered, you know, I mean, the imagine, people have said it for me, the imagination is far more powerful than any film. Mm. I mean, the fear we create now, imagination, is far greater than any fear we can capture on you know and create generate on on screen but the whole filming process is so boring <laughs> watching I, I went on set only a handful of times not even that when they were filming the secret she keeps and they and watching them film the same scene from 12 different angles i just thought oh my god this is like watching paint dry <laughs> and um and I thought, you know, it's much more exciting in my cabana of cruelty where I can have really exciting stuff happen. <laughs> Michael, I've heard you say a number of times and I've read that you've said that you tend not to plot your books. You come up with an idea and then you create a group of characters and then you let the story unfold from there. So I was wondering, what was the idea behind this book, When You Are Mine? It had several sort of seeds, uh, and I'm glad you used the word idea because so often people use the word inspired, and I and I and I and I, hate, oh, I hate the idea that a crime would inspire anyone to do anything, even a, a crime writer to write a, a novel. But no, I saw a really interesting documentary, or a I can't remember if it was a Four Corners report um, or or something on Seven Thirty, uh, and it was about domestic violence or domestic abuse involving. The, the victims being the partners of police officers and how the police fail to investigate their own when it comes to domestic abuse. And, and I suddenly thought, how helpless would you be if the very people you would normally turn to for help couldn't help you mm. and the very people that potentially could take you to a woman's shelter, which is supposed to be secret locations where your partner cannot find you, mm. but because your partner is a police officer, he knows where those shelters are. He can get to you because they have access to police computers. They can track your mobile phone number. They can track your movements. They can, tra they can you know, it's it, there is nowhere to hide. And I just thought that was such a, a terrible sort of situation to be in, that that was sort of the seed of the idea behind When You Were Mine. Um, and the other one, I guess, I suppose the other area is toxic toxic friendships. And I, and there's a scene in the book which actually is based on a real-life event, uh, and it's not giving me too much away, but it's basically someone who had, had you know, a, a, a friend who... Um, had become almost indispensable in their life, you know, the sort of person that would do everything. I'd pick up their dry cleaning and, you know, do things for them. I just seemed to always be there, and which is lovely, really, you know, uh, initially, until such a point, you know, a point comes where you suddenly think, well, hold on, you know, they're too close. And in this particular case, it was, um, and the scene in the book is where someone discovered that their, their pantry, someone had come to the house and had rearranged their pantry and put everything alphabet and then written labels on everything. But In the, the, handwriting, in the handwriting of the hand. kitchen owner. Yeah. That was one of the creepiest scenes in the book yeah. for me. And to have copied your own handwriting on it and you suddenly think, yeah, that, yeah. Mm. So that's based on a real story. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'm going to somehow put those two together. Michael, I was interested as to why you said it in London. London's plays a very, it's almost like a character in this book. It's its very important that the setting is London and there's a lot of discussion of places in London and London as a city. I know that you spent time living in London years ago. Why did you choose to, sit this, to set this in London rather than Australia, for example? It's funny, I'm yet to set a book in Australia, mm. you know, even though this is home for me. I mean, I guess part of it, I mean, the story I love telling is years and years ago, I mean, my very first novel, my, my the greatest ever on 
published Australian novel is still sitting in my bottom drawer. Uh, and it was almost, it was set in a small fishing uh, village in, in uh, Australia. And um, it was almost published by, by Penguin in the UK. And this is going back in sort of 1985. Mm. Okay, I was 25 years old. Mm. Um, and I missed out by a single vote in a publishing meeting. I needed a unanimous vote. I got 8-1. Uh, and so they didn't, they didn't publish it. And I was told afterwards that the reason they didn't publish it is that if I'd set that same book in England, Ireland, Scotland or Wales, they would have published it in a heartbeat. But because I'd set it in Australia, it was just, and I was living and working in the UK at that point as a journalist, they just said it was just a little too hard to launch a new writer in the UK market mm. with a book that was set in Australia. I think mm-hmm. the world's moved on a lot since then, yes. we know. Um, but back in those days, it was pretty much the British would read British fiction and the Americans would read American fiction. And in Australia, we would read whatever they deigned to send us. Um, we now have our own vibrant publishing industry, of course. Um, and and that book now, I've got publishers falling over themselves to want me to pull that book out of the bottom drawer. But while it stays in the bottom drawer, it will always be Australia's greatest ever unpublished novel. <laughs> <laughs> the moment I take it out, all bets are off. Um but I guess when, when I when I sat down to write The Suspect, which was many years later, I, I was in between ghostwriting projects and I had a three-month window and I wrote 117 pages. And I and I sat down and I thought, well, okay, that first novel um, I set in Australia. And let's set, in all my publishing contexts, because as a ghostwriter, they're all in the UK. I thought, well, that's where I had my contacts. That's how I had my agent. So I thought, let's set a book in the UK and see what happens. And, of course, that 117 pages triggered a bidding war at the London Book Fair in 2002 and, mm. you know, went ballistic and it sold mm. into more than 20 translations. And and after that moment, I continued setting books in the UK or life mm. or death, I, I set in Texas. But I do intend to set a book in Australia mm-hmm. at, at some point. But I, I guess at the moment, um, look, it's it's almost distance is an interesting thing. You know, when I when I lived in London, I wrote a book set in Australia because I could remember Australia so vividly because I missed it so much. And when I live in Australia, I, I, I find I can set books in London because I I recall it so vividly and I miss it. And I go back there, well, until the last couple of years, I go back there two or three times a year. Let's talk a little bit now about the two women at the heart of this book, Philomena and Tempe. Tell us a little bit more about the main protagonist, Philomena McCarthy. What do we know about her and, in particular, something you you adverted to earlier, what do we know about her family and her background? Yeah, I mean, Philomena wants, you know, that opening chapter, the, the few pages I read, I mean, that's the reason she becomes a policewoman is because of that that figure that she saw amid all the dust and the debris, that young policewoman that comforted her. But Philomena, uh, Philomena's father, um, family of the McCarthy family. Her father is Edward McCarthy, a notorious sort of London gangster uh, who uh, with three brothers. And the four brothers, you know, three of the brothers have been to prison. Edward McCarthy is the only one that Philomena's father that avoided prison. But he sort of remade himself as so many of these figures do. He now calls himself a property developer. Uh, and he's a seriously wealthy man, he's, and he became wealthy on the back of the London Olympics because so much of the east end of London that was transformed into the Olympic Stadium and all the Olympic facilities, you know, he managed to not only buy up vast tracts of that but pretty much control the concreting and the scaffolding and the security and find those nefarious means to pretty much mean that his companies won all those tenders because he either threatened or he blackmailed, or he just bullied his way into making this fortune. And and so Philomena has this in her background. She has, the, the police don't want anything to do with her, but she fights and threatens to sue them. And under the British law, there's nothing to stop her becoming a policewoman. But this is in her background. And the family, she's been estranged from them for 10 years, but she's engaged to be married. And the family, her father is turning 60, and he desperately wants his only daughter back in his life, Mm. and that's the clash that's coming. She talks about that. She's in her late 20s, and and we learn that very early on, that she hasn't seen her father for about 10 years. She feels a lot of anger towards him. She says she hates his new wife, his second wife, and she hates his house, and she hates so many things about him. 
why does she feel so much anger towards him? I guess it comes from a lot of things because, I mean, she she's very close to her mum and, of course, her father did the very prosaic thing of running off with a much younger younger sort of secretary and her, her mother's very religious, very Catholic and, and, and you know, is not going to remarry, still considers herself in a sense to be married. That was the one marriage she was ever going to have. And, and she refused, the mother refused to take any of the money that she was owed really from, from that marriage. And so her mother lives a very modest life running a beauty sort of salon, uh, which is in dire straits after all the COVID lockdowns and she's in massive debt. And yet her father is living this incredible sort of, you know, luxurious life and mixing with sort of, you know, celebrities and all sorts of things like that. And so she resents that about him. She resents, you know, how he made his money. She resents how he treated um, her mother. Um, and she resents how he uses people and, he, and she, you know, and that's the reason. I think, again, she uses the word hate, but it's like I always warn my daughters, they use the word hate too often or too regularly. It's like when you sort of, when they don't want to eat a particular meal, oh, I hate that. Well, I mean, there's a real difference between not liking something and hating something. Michael, I wanted to ask why Philomena became a police officer. You've referred to that opening scene which you took us to and um, how when she was 11, young and impressionable, there was this wonderful policewoman who was so comforting on that occasion. But I did wonder also if to some extent she wanted to become a police officer in a sort of deliberate rebellion against her father and his background. And we've got colleagues who sort of hinted things like this. At one point, a colleague says to her, I think you're just trying to prove you're nothing like your father. How much does that drive her to be, to have wanted to be a police officer to start with Mm -hmm. and to be the sort of crusading police officers that she turns out to be in this book? I think it's a lot of motivation for her, you know, and I think, um, it's an interesting era. I mean, it's one of the great moral dilemmas in the book, of course, because, you know, here she is, she's come from this background of this corrupt family and she thinks she's going into this organisation that withhold, you know, upholds justice and right and she discovers just how much corruption there is within the London Metropolitan Police and that really in any organisation, you know, that she, she, what she thought she was escaping from, she's gone back into mm-hmm. um, in that sense and, I think it's a lovely scene where she discovers that when she graduates from Hendon, the police college, you know, she graduated equal top of her class and she had no idea that among the crowd her father was there, that he'd gone, secretly gone to watch her graduate. And she, in her heart of heart, thought she was had disappointed him by, you know, that this was a real stick in the eye, you know, I've become a police officer, you know, that you that must really gall you. But he says to her, I couldn't have been proud of watching you graduate you know uh, and that's and I think she discovers as a lot of children do that you're proud of them regardless as long as you know this they're always going to be your child and he was proud of the fact that she was successful you know um, and that she was good at what she was doing and I think that that surprised her but it also helped to try to repair some of that um, some of those sort of bonds that have been broken. Tell us now about that opening scene when Philomena and a colleague are called to a domestic violence incident. Can you describe what they see and how Philomena deals with that situation? Yeah, I mean, initially it's a typical, I mean, it's, it's the job that police hate most, domestic abuse call-outs, because they're often so helpless because even if it's because some, you know, you've got a drunken partner that's become violent or aggressive, so often the the victim isn't willing to press charges, uh, and if they don't, they're not willing to press charges. There's nothing the police can really do apart from perhaps take arrest them if they've you know, uh, and lock them up for a few hours to cool down. And in this case, Tempe answers the door. Tempe Brown answers the door, and she's bloodied and she's bruised, and she's claiming she's home alone. But in fact, they sense quite quickly there's someone hiding behind the door, uh, and. And initially this, the perpetrator doesn't reveal that he's a police officer. He wants the police to go away. He says it's, you know, she hurt herself accidentally. Uh, And it's only when Tempe does exactly what she should do, you know, she has to make sure the victim is like, Tempe is okay. Um, And, you know, it's only when it escalates that she decides to arrest this police officer 
he claims he, he's a real, he's a police officer, but they don't know whether to believe him or not. Uh, and she uses, it's really interesting, it's a, she uses a, a karate technique to take him down, which is actually illegal um, in the police. In the in the London Met- Metropolitan Police, you are only allowed to arrest someone using what you've been trained, you know, at at sort of police college, you cannot use martial arts. Even if it's a battle between a, a small woman and a larger man. Yeah, even if it's a battle. I know. And so this is why Philomena is a small woman and this guy was far much heavier and stronger. And that's why she, she'd always, she taught herself karate or, you know, she'd been taught karate and she, she taught lessons herself. And so she she took him down in, in the safest possible way, but that was then used against her because when he got to the police station, he lodged a complaint against her and the techniques she used. So suddenly, instead of he being in all this trouble for having abused his mistress, she was in trouble and she faced disciplinary proceedings. And that's when she began to realise the powers that were lining up against her. And that's largely because of who he is, this Darren Goodall, isn't it? So he's not just any old police officer. Tell us a bit about his background. Yeah, he, he's... Um, Darren Goodall had become quite famous in the Metropolitan Police for, for about 18 months earlier. There had been a, a knife attack, uh, which initially thought may have been a terrorist uh, attack, but basically a particular person with a mental illness had gone had gone berserk with a knife and stabbed three people. And he, he was with his family uh, at Camden Market and he intervened and he wrestled this man and suffered serious injuries and disarmed this man and held him until help arrived. And he won the Queen's Gallantry Medal, and he went to Buckingham Palace and received the medal from the Queen, and he became the poster boy for the London Metropolitan Police. I mean, he was he was what it meant to be a true hero in the London Metropolitan Police. Um, they could use him for recruiting purposes, you know, they could roll him up into talk shows. So being the pin-up boy, they did not want to see their pin-up boy being charged with domestic violence and... Um, which is why they had to hush that up and it's why they had to silence Philomena. And without wanting to give much away, because we certainly don't want any spoilers, what becomes clear through the book is that he is a serial offender. He's a serial domestic violence offender. So although uh, on the outside he's this great, highly decorated police officer, national hero, in fact we discover he's a serial uh, abuser of women. Is he based on anyone in particular or was he just a creation of yours? Oh, look, it's not hard to find people to base him on when we look at the serious problems of, of domestic abuse in, in Australia and, and the UK. And, and I, make, I make note in the, in the acknowledgements of this book that, you know, we have one, one woman a week dying in Australia. Uh, it's three women a day in America. And, you know, it's um, three women a week in the UK are dying at the hands of uh, a partner, a violent partner, and so it's not hard to find inspiration for um, you know for for people like him. Um, and I guess you know it's this issue. I mean, one of the books that I read uh, in doing my research is Jess Hill's um, amazing book, "Look What You Made Me Do." You know, again, which you know she managed to interview a lot of of, of these serial abusers who who. Many of them say, talk about, you know, why they do it, you know, and, and you know, doesn't forgive what they did, but just the rage they feel and mm-hmm. and, and they, they know what they're doing is wrong, you know, um, and it doesn't excuse anything they do, but it's a fascinating insight and it's why we need coercive control laws in this country, which the UK does have, but we don't, we don't have them in this country yet. I want to ask you about this. It's so obvious from the way you portray these domestic abuse situations and you do specifically deal with this issue of coercive control, which is behaviour less than actual abuse but which uh, is either a precursor to or part of a pattern of domestic abuse. And one of the victims in this book has um, one of Darren's victims. We learn um, that he's cutting off her friends on the phone. He's controlling how much money she spends. He's not letting her drive a car. I was interested to hear that you read Jess's book. I was wondering about that. She's been a guest on this program before. Tell me about the research that you did. It was obviously pretty thorough because that that issue of coercive control is something that's being talked about now in New South Wales, Uh, that issue of whether or not that should be criminalised. It's a very hot topic. I'd like to hear about the research that you did that enabled you to write so convincingly about the problem of domestic abuse. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, Justice Hill book 
was invaluable, but it's one of, one of the lesser known books that I ghostwrote um, uh, was a book by uh, Linda Kane, um, and it's called Out of the Darkness. And and uh, Linda Kane um, ha- was you know had this perfect life, was married with um, two beautiful children at private school in the UK, and a husband was a very successful lawyer. And she filled um, filled her car with petrol and and shopping in the supermarket one day, and then drove off a cliff. And she figured that no one no one would think it was suicide if she just filled the car with petrol and shopping. They would think it was an accident. And and she survived. She survived that, and she spent the next sort of eighteen months in a in um, a psychiatric hospital under a suicide watch. And kept a diary, which is what the book is sort of um, based upon. When you unpack, and it wasn't actually her solicitor husband; it was her first marriage that they that she talked about. I mean, this first this man took her to live in basically a cabin in the wilderness to keep it not just cut off a phone, not just cut off a family. Then took her and imprisoned her in a cabin in the wilderness, um, and um, you know would become. I mean would literally look to make sure that there were, there were no tyre tracks on the track coming in. And even if they weren't, he was still convinced that someone would visit her while she'd gone to work and he'd have to beat her up, you know. I mean, it was just astonishing what she went through before she escaped. And and so it was sort of Linda Kane's story and Jess Hill and then doing just doing lots of reading of, of online blogs. Um, I mean, it's, I find that an invaluable source because so many so many people, whether it be, you know, whether it's self-harm or whether it be uh, people that have suffered abuse and whatnot, they are writing it up in, in blogs and, and they are sharing their stories and um, you get that opportunity to sort of to read their stories and to pick and choose details to try to obviously hide the identities to make sure you're not following anyone's story too closely. Let's talk now a bit about Tempe Brown, the woman that Philomena rescues. What do we know about her? What's she like? Tempe Brown was actually, is Phil, because she's so badly bruised when Phil sees her, Phil only just sort of senses that they've met before and it's not for, you know, until they're on their way to the hospital or they, she takes Tempe to hospital for an X-ray that she realised they were at school together. Tempe was a few years ahead of her at school and Tempe was one of those people that Phil absolutely admired and adored. She was she was beautiful and and popular and one of the head girls, but had left the school quite suddenly under a bit of a cloud. And Phil sort of remembered there'd been some rumours around, but Tempe had gone off to to her family had moved to Northern Ireland. Phil's, you know, it doesn't, you know, I mean, she she initially, you know, this is just professional. I mean, all, you know, they, there's no idea they're going to be a friendship when you rescue someone from a domestic violence situation. You don't immediately become friends, but it's only I think what happens is that when when Philomena arrests Darren Goodall, you know, the 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 abuser um, with her techniques. I mean, Tempe is in awe of the fact that this quite small woman, you know, has managed to absolutely floor this strong bloody man who'd been beating Tempe around. Um, and she's just in awe of, of, of Phil's strength and and um, <coughs> you know, her, and so Philomena, you know, mentions that she that was a karate technique, and Philomena is teaching a karate lesson weeks later, and Tempe shows up at the studio, having obviously researched karate studios through London to establish where Philomena, you know, well, I mean that itself should have been a little sign that um, <laughs> that that perhaps Tempe, you know. Um, wasn't you know completely on the level but but I mean, that's when the friendship you know blossoms when Tempe says can you teach me and then it develops very rapidly doesn't it and before we know it Tempe's organizing um Phil's wedding for her so can you describe you've said in the acknowledgments I've heard you say elsewhere this one of the themes of this book is toxic friendship describe to us how that relationship between Phil and Tempe develops and what is it that makes it so, I used the word creepy before, sinister. Yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, we all, it's funny, we all, the term I've sometimes used is, is when it comes to our friends, there are heaters and there are drainers. We have some friends that energise us, that literally from the moment you see them and that you light up and they're, they're full of so much energy that you might be feeling a bit down, but they will brighten you up. 
And there are other friends we have who are drainers, who are, who are the sort of, I guess, the moaners and the whingers and the, who can suddenly manage, even if you're in a good mood, to bring you down. And, and then there are the sort of friends that you think who are just very, very, they're gaslighting you in a sense. I mean, very, you know, they're saying, oh, I love your new hair. You know, I love your new hair. But didn't you think about maybe putting highlight, not on the losing? You know, they've, they can't even give you a compliment without making, turning something negative about it, you know. And, and sometimes you don't realise that they're doing it, where they're just slowly, they're, they're criticising you or something you're wearing or your boyfriend or your partner or they're just finding ways to bring you down. And, and um, that's a toxic friend, you know. And, um, and in Tempe's case, you don't quite know initially whether she wants to, I mean, te well, Tempe is one of those people that doesn't, when she has a friend, it's got to be a best friend. It's got to be an only friend. You can't have any other friends. You've got to be her best friend. So it's almost like she wants Phil completely. She wants ownership. She wants um, Phil's attention. She wants Phil's other friends to disappear. She even wants Phil's fiance to really be out of the picture and sense. she just wants Phil to herself. What do the other friends, what do Phil's other friends think of Tempe? Well, it's interesting then because, I mean, one of the issues I had in writing the book was, you know, I don't want people to think that Philomena is blind to this, you know, that she doesn't see that it's a bit, you know. I mean, Philomena is naive in a sense that she wants to believe the best in people, but she became a police officer for that very reason. You know, um, she wants to, she's dealing with, at times, the complete dregs. I mean, when you look at the... Most people that come into the, the, the ambit of the police force, they're, they're often they're often criminals, or they're they're drug addicts, or or they've got mental health illnesses. I mean, the vast majority of people that the police arrest in any given day are people that you know have had have issues with poverty, deprivation, mental health, drugs, or whatever. Um, and so, but Philomena wants to think the best of everyone. And so she gives Tempe, and suddenly, I mean, Tempe's cleverest thing Tempe does is say, I'll arrange your wedding for you. And I'm good at that sort of thing because suddenly it's not just about, I want to distance myself from you. I, I, Tempe, you're getting too close. It's, you know, I need you to help looking after this wedding because no one else can. And you've got, you've arranged it all. So she's sort of trapped. And even when she reaches the point where she thinks, okay, after the wedding, after the wedding, I'm cutting Tempe off, you know, um, but she keeps making excuses. And her friends are saying, Phil, Philomena, this is, um, she's not good. You know, there's something weird about her. Michael, you mentioned earlier this issue about the police and looking after their own, protecting their own. There's a lot about the police in this book. There are some good police and there are some bad police. Um, how did you go about researching them and the police culture? Is that something where you were drawing on your experience that you talked about as a ghostwriter? Yeah, a bit of both. I mean, I acknowledge a, a, a wonderful policeman in in. Um, uh, Nick Lucas in London, who who helped me, but I have to sort of say to people like Nick, because Nick is such a stickler for protocol, and I have to say, Nick, if I stuck exactly to protocol, the book would never get written. You know, I have to fudge. You know, it's like um, because you know, it's like when you read a courtroom novel or uh, you know a legal novel. If anyone that's any spent time ever spent time in a courtroom knows that if you just put that down on paper, it'd be the most boring thing imaginable. You know, they're all stylized. Um, so I do partly on my own experience, partly on on uh, help from police serving police officers, partly on even wonderful series like Line of Duty, which is about police corruption in 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 the UK. Uh, all of the above, really, you know, um, drawing upon uh, drawing upon as much as you can. And look, and any any it's like anything else to say, but I'm sure when a when a doctor. Um, reads, you know, uh, or watches a medical drama, they probably scoff and go, oh, that would never happen, you know. There's no doubt detectives that are, would read the book and scoff and say, well, that would never happen. But, you know, um, it's fiction. <laughs> I do, I've got to tell you, though, I do laugh that uh, there's a there's a heart surgeon in the book called Emily Granger, and that is the actual name and character of my heart surgeon that that, uh, that looked after me and gave me a quadruple bypass. And she had no idea that I'd put her in the book until um, until she started getting phone calls. And her her, her mother was so excited. <laughs> 
something that I thought was interesting, and you're the first fiction writer that I have seen to have done this. You mentioned COVID a couple of times in the book. Um, Tempe says at one stage that one of her sisters or brothers died of COVID. And I thought that was really interesting. And this is a conversation I've been having with writers before and, and with other people in the arts. To what extent do we talk about COVID and do we make it part of the um, artistic worlds that that we're creating? When I initially, the first draft, it was this book was basically it had COVID all the way through it and it was my publishers around the world that said, can you take it out? We don't want any COVID references. And I said, well, I don't want to not reference it at all. They just sort of, they felt as though I had dated the book straight away so people reading this book in four or five years time and it's written in the first person present so they felt it dated it too much um and b they thought really people want to be not reminded of COVID they want to be taken away from COVID mm. they're reading these books as a form of escape and so I took most of the COVID references mm. out I kept a couple in there because I just felt as though because oddly enough I, I, I faced a problem with my previous book when she was good which actually begins in the opening chapter, it says May 2020 as setting, and there's no reference to COVID because that book was written before mm. COVID even existed. And I, I had to put in the acknowledgements. I had time just to put a paragraph in the acknowledgements. I apologise for anyone reading this because, you know, I just said, but the book was written before COVID. And I always assumed that I'd put COVID in, in this book, but in the end, you know, as I said, I understand why the publishers told mm. me to take it out. And oddly enough, even the few references you've mentioned, I've had a few little bit of reader feedback through um, just, you know, tweets and whatnot, sort of saying, oh, I wish he hadn't mentioned COVID. I mean, people don't want to be reminded. No, it's really interesting. As I say, I had this discussion with a friend who was a playwright. On the one hand, people want escapism. We want to forget about what we're going through. On the other hand, as a writer or a creator, in contemporary times, how do you just leave that alone? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Initially, it's funny. I had, you know, with all, the, with all these Zoom meetings, there were publishers falling over themselves and ideas floating around and people, people publishers talking to me about, oh, can you write a, a lockdown mystery? I mean, this is going to be, can you do it like a Zoom murder mystery? I mean, people imagine that, that our entire artistic sort of thing would all be COVID-based. We'd have COVID novels and COVID plays. And um, I don't think it's going to happen. No, I don't think we do want that. Michael, I know that you uh, regard the late John le Carre very highly. You've described him as your absolute literary hero on one occasion. What makes his writing so good? I think John le Carre was just a master of beautifully drawn characters. Um, I mean, so many people assume that when you're dealing with crime or mystery fiction, it's all plot. That, that, and, and what I try, I keep telling people is that if you ask someone what their favourite crime or mystery novel is uh, and, and I go, what's it about, they straight away begin talking about the character. Long after they've forgotten the plot, long after they've forgotten the plot, it's the character that stays with them. It's the character that 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 brings you back to the same series time and time again. And I think Nakare was just a master at creating a remarkable, like, I mean, characters that lived and breathed on the page and... Um, and then also this sort of amazing moral dilemma. You know, I mean, I, I reread um, just this year for a Lacare special after he 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 passed away. Um, the spy came in from the cold, and it is just you know without doubt it's the greatest spy novel ever written. I mean, but it's just the most astonishingly uh, beautiful novel. And the moral dilemma at the end of it, you know, is to you know you know, right and wrong, you know, which so whether you be you know, that whole idea of the Cold War and, you know, who were the good guys and who were the bad guys because they both seem pretty odious, you know. Uh, it's just astonishing the way that like RA could, could do that. Michael, this book is a standalone. Um, you've done a few of those before in addition to the two very successful series, the Joe O'Loughlin series and the Cyrus Haven series. What do you enjoy about writing a standalone like this? What can you do that you can't do when you're writing as part um, of a series? It is a standalone, although I'm under enormous pressure at the moment from people saying we want more from Philomena. That's my next question. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, the beauty of a standalone is, I mean, I liken writing uh, a series 
to, you know, it's a bit like, you know, I love the Cyrus Haven Evie Cormac series, but spending a year inside their heads is like spending a year in a two-man tent with two other people um, or a two-person tent. And it doesn't matter how good of friends they are and how much I love them, you get tired and you get, you wanted to go away for a while and you want to break. And writing a standalone, it's a bit like when I was a ghostwriter, I got just to look at the world through the eyes of someone fresh and new. Um, and and writing standalone lets me look at the world through the eyes of someone new, Philomena, and create these whole blank canvas, these whole new characters. Um, Writing a series comes with its problems. You've got to you've got to reintroduce characters that people might never. Have. You've got to assume that someone's picking up the third book in the series, never having read the first two. Mm. You have to reintroduce characters in a new, fresh way that your existing readers don't go, "Oh my god, this is boring." We know all this. You've got to find new, fresh ways to doing that. Whereas in a standalone, you don't have those problems. You just have to create your compelling characters and let the story unfold. Well, you're a victim of your own success because that was my next question, which is having created this fabulous character of Philomena, might you be tempted to yeah. write some more Philomena books? It's interesting. I, I've got I've got an Evie and Cyrus book coming at the moment, which I'm I'm writing now, and I haven't completely decided um, whether to do to do another Philomena book. I'm tempted because the other you know big news. Um, well, I mean, at the moment it's going ahead is the the, the um, Joseph O'Loughlin TV series begins filming in London in September. Um, and, you know, with an amazing cast who I can't reveal yet because they haven't been made public, but it's an amazing cast. And 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 I'm sort of tempted because it's been, you know, The Other Wife was the last Joe O'Loughlin book, which is it's four years ago now. And I'm sort of tempted if the TV series comes out next year, to bring out a Joe Lachlan book for the first time in five years, to bring a Joe Lachlan book out to coincide with um, with the TV series, um, which might be fun because mm. they revisit Joe. Uh, and it's five years, I mean, I'd be excited. So I don't know. I mean, so Philomena and the family might have to wait. I don't know. Who knows? I mean, if I come up with a good idea, it's so much expensive if I come up with a good idea, you know, um, that excites me. Final question. You said once that your agent called you the reluctant thriller writer. Why was mm-hmm. that? I didn't realise. Um, I didn't realise I was writing crime novels. When, when my first manuscript at the Suspect sold on 117 pages, I didn't know how it ended. Uh, I didn't know it was a crime novel. Um, I, I thought it was very much a, like a mystery, but a Hitchcockian sort of, you know, man in the wrong place at the wrong time type story. And and that book sold all around the world, and it, and it was a often multiple book contracts, and, and and I assumed I didn't know that I I you know that I was signing up to be a crime and thriller writer, um, until my agent said, "Have you read your contract?" Um, and it actually said in my contract that I will write something of a similar nature or similar. And I suddenly, I, my initial reaction was, no, no, I, I should be able to write anything I want. You know, if I want to write a romance, let me write a romance. Uh, and he's going, well, not until you feel the contract is fulfilled. Um, so that was my reluctance initially. I didn't want to be pigeonholed. I wanted my books to go not just in the crime section in the bookshop. I wanted them to go in the in the, in the fiction section. I wanted them... I, I didn't want to be pigeonholed. Um, I now don't mind at all because I know where people go looking for the book and I also think that crime writing allows you to shine a light into the darkest areas of society and the human psyche and, and you know, a lot of fiction, not all great fiction, doesn't it, but a lot of very ordinary fiction is sort of navel-gazing, whereas I think, you know, good fiction should be talking, looking at problems like domestic abuse and coercive control. Good fiction should be tackling big issues as well as telling small stories in compelling ways. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today on Books, Books, Books. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Once again, huge congratulations on the book hitting number one in the fiction lists uh, both weeks since its publication. You can't do better than that. Um, And good luck promoting it. Thank you very much, Nicole. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. 
If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.